Hi, I'm Tony Cowan-Brown. And I'm Benedict Evans. And what are we going to talk about? Well, I had a question for you. What's on your AI bingo card this week? Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's we've got a new one every week. Yeah, well, so the sort of meta observation we were, we were chatting about earlier is that this is moving massively faster than most recent things, most recent things in tech. Because no one needs, you don't need to buy a new device. You don't need to learn a new programming language. Like, well, the whole stack is kind of there and ready. And so every week there's another like 30 AI projects and another five giant companies announce something. So like this week it's like Palantir and PwC and this and that. But within that, there's a sort of like this is sort of general spread of, okay, okay, of like this is the biggest thing in tech in a decade. This is the new iPhone moment or maybe the web moment. And then you've got people who say it's a new GUI moment or something. And everyone says, okay, this is amazing, like long horse, what is it? And everyone's kind of trying to work out, like, what's the, what are the kind of structural ways of understanding this? What are the parameters? What are the questions? And it seemed to me like, here we are, you know, pick a timeline six weeks into this or a couple of months into this, depending on where you start the clock, and kind of getting to the point that you can kind of like make a list of like, okay, here are half a dozen questions. Um, that seem to be like the quest, the the base questions, at least for like the next two weeks, unless everything changes again, again, which is, is it has been known to happen recently. And it kind of struck me that there's like there's there's the AGI conversation, like does this go to AGI? If so, what does that mean? What does AI safety mean? What does risk mean? What would that look like? In which, on the first in the first case, all the people who've actually been working on this for twenty years don't agree, um, and most of them say we don't know. And so the rest of us can't really, like, it's not really much value in, in me deciding whether I believe Jeff, Jeff Dean or Jan LeCun on this, because um, it's all Greek to me anyway. And if if they're right and this does happen, then I don't know how you could analyze what actual AGI would mean for anything else, because that's kind of a sort of complete paradigm shift in, 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 in everything. It's sort of a say we're all steam engine analysts and like electricity arrives and it doesn't take 50 years, it takes like six months. Pretty difficult to analyze what that would mean. Um, and so you kind of almost like kind of park that from a kind of from a sense of, of, of trying to obviously like it's important, but try actually kind of make any questions about what the companies are going to happen and how we're going to use this. You always have to kind of park the AGI, AGI conversation because if it happens, then and then all bets are off. It's you know it's it's like the you know the, the cartoon about you know the, the newly hatched chick that's saying wow paradigm shift. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. In the, like, in the, you imagine you're the chick inside the shell speculating about what's going to happen next. Like, you don't know. You have no idea what's outside. Yeah. So, if they want to like park the AGI conversation somewhere else, even though you could say it's the most important thing in humanity in the last 10,000 years, but park it. Um, and then you so say, then you so, say, well, then what? Well, then what are the questions? And it seems to me you can kind of make a list of sort of half a dozen questions that flow after this. And so, the first question, so sort of going through them and then we can kind of dig into them. The first, there is a cost, there is a cost model size question. Like how big it, how big are these models? Do they continue to be this big? Does it continue to cost this this much, both to run to train them and then to run them? Because that gets you to a whole bunch of possible outcomes. And what's feasible? The second, yeah. yeah, and what will the market structure look like? The second question is right now, if you ask this a question and the result is three or four paragraphs, one of those paragraphs will be completely wrong. And is there a path to fixing that? If not, what does that mean? And what does that mean for like where this gets deployed and how? So how do you think about the error rate? Um, and you could say, well, if that gets fixed, then we've got AGI. But actually, I don't think that's true because one way to fix it might be that it could just say, I don't know. 
problem at the moment is it, it might not know and give you make something up or it might know and make something up and that's different to it just saying sorry I'm only a language model I can't answer that um, as opposed to an AGI which in principle could answer it so there's the cost question there's the error question then there are sort of questions around like product and interface is a text box the right way of doing this uh, what does the real UI look like? How horizontal does the UI go? Do you just have kind of one text box to talk to Salesforce? Or rather, do you have a button that says generate a sales email based on the following criteria? And you've got four different switches you choose. And you press go and it makes your sales email. Like, is just kind of one command line. Just kind of what a prompt is. Is that like the right UI? Um, what? How does this get productized? Um, does this turn into 50 companies or one company? And that flows back to how many models are there? Yeah. If there's only three models and everything's running on that, then the market looks different to if you know, there's another outcome in which um, there's lots of models. So you've got the cost question, the error rate model, the kind of the UI model, and then you've got sort of trust and safety. Then you've got kind of output control questions like um, on the one side, trust and safety, what happens if you ask it for bad stuff? And on the other side, kind of copyright questions and privacy questions. Um, who owns this? What's the training data? Who owns the training data? Um, what does that mean? What happens if you ask it for a recipe for napalm and it says yes? What does that mean? Some of these are reruns of questions we had around Google and the internet 20 years ago. Some of them are not. Like, I don't think anybody's asked, like, how does section 230 apply to chat GPT? Um, but that's kind of, someone's going to ask that. Isn't it interesting on, those, on the trust and safety that you've got a bucket of questions that like, yeah, we're rehashing questions that we have every time there's new tech and then there are questions that no one ever thought would be a question around trust and safety that we would need to handle. Yeah. And so you kind of run all the way through those and there's sort of one case in which this sort of looks like, how can I put this? It's as though all of us were basically running terminals that were connected to mainframes from either IBM, Hewlett-Packard or Honeywell. And like that was the entire global compute system. There were no PCs. Like everyone had a box on their desk that was connected and you chose and you maybe your box could switch between IBM and Honeywell and they gave you slightly different answers. And that was what the internet and the computer consumer computing revolution was. Like it was like me to tell. And that's almost kind of where we're what we're looking at with like one extreme case around LLMs. That it's like there's Microsoft there's Microsoft OpenAI, there's Google, and there's one other. There's a slightly more realistic case of which is like there's a there's a there's an old engineering joke I've probably used before um, that a Russian screwdriver is a hammer, it's just hit it harder. And this is sort of what what we've done with AI in the last a the last ten years and b like the last ten weeks, which is in like the previous attempts at doing AI were all about human beings trying to write the rules and trying to create and complicate systems. And what machine learning does is say you know just give it all the data and let the computer work out the answers and like, brute force it basically. Or rather, let the computer work out the rules. So the previous, there's this great framing of, of what machine learning is doing, which is the previous attempt to do it was that the humans, you take the data and you try and write the rules. And what machine learning to produce the answers. And what machine learning does is, no, you give it the input and you give it the answers and the machine learning system writes the rules. And of course, what generative AI is just kind of doing that backwards. And you get it to work, you know, you give it the answers and the data and it produces more input. And the... What OpenAI did to get to extend this is to say, well, let's just give it in like 100 days more data and 100 days more compute and let's see how much better it gets. Now, the question, and now we're kind of sort of segueing into like the scale question, which is. Are there any, before you move over, are there any other questions apart from, there's already quite a bit, but error rate, cost, UI, trust and safety, is there anything else to add to that? Or well, is... trust and safety slash privacy slash copyright. Yes. Which 
I mean, you could kind of have a conversation where those are those all sort of aspects of the same thing. Of the same, yeah. But the sort of the kind of the, the core of this is like OpenAI got these amazing results by throwing like stupendous amounts of data in and then spending an enormous amount of money crunching a model for six months and then spending another six months of course of work building on top of that. Um, and then like at the other extreme, you've got Midjourney, which is eight people, and you've got people kind of running projects with other open source models. Obviously, the, the, this is the industry joke that OpenAI isn't open. Um, it's closed AI. Um, that are smaller models that don't produce quite such good results, but it's kind of not binary. It's not like there's open AI and everything else. There's a sort of a spectrum. And so you've got this sense of like, well, you've got this spectrum of how good the model is versus how big it is and what it costs in order to train that. And those are all those points on that plot, all of like historically have gone up and to the right, but now they're going to start going down because the models get more efficient and people work out better ways of training them and you optimize all the individual components of them. And so there's a sort of question set around how big does the model need to be? How good does it need to be? How vertical can it be? You've got OpenAI, which can quote unquote, do anything, or at least try to do anything. But if you're just doing like a medical model, or you're just doing a law model, or you're just doing um, certain kind of images, does that, how much smaller and how much cheaper can that model be? And again, that becomes a very technical conversation. And it, from the outcome, it's well, smaller and cheaper, but we don't know. But that sort of, to me, is like kind of the first sort of set of questions, as I said, because it may be that, you know, there's one extreme, like there's three models and every other company sort of runs on top of those plugged into them. And all they're doing is sort of middleware or, you know, plugging their own data into some instance of that or just producing a UI on top of it. But everybody is sort of dependent on OpenAI or dependent on one of a, relative, a handful of companies to run these models. Whereas what happened with the previous wave of machine learning is if you ask now how many machine learning models there are, that's kind of a meaningless question. It's like saying how many databases are there or how many spreadsheets are there? And the answer is lots. And there are going to take all effects within that. And there are cases where you need to have a lot of proprietary data and training the model is expensive. Um, but in general, machine learning has become a commodity very quickly, um, which is sort of the absurdity of people saying, well, we have to ban face recognition. Well, you, you, can, you can ban it, but that won't work because um, it's just a commodity technology. So this is sort of like the one, and I suppose the thing that sits, this is, there's almost sort of two consequences that flow out of this. One of them is that industry structure question. And the other is that, this is kind of back to the mainframe analogy, that, you know, most of us were not born or at least not taking an interest the last time it cost money to press OK on a computer. And yes, you know, there's things like, you know, if you're going, if you're rendering a Pixar movie or, you know, you're, you're, you're compiling code, you've got to wait. And if you are, you know, editing a movie or editing very big pictures or, you know, compiling some complicated pop song, then yes, you know, you need a fast computer and you need to click and wait and so on. But the idea that like it might cost, it's like it actually has more, a consumer internet company has real tangible marginal cost every time a consumer does something. That's kind of a new thing. You know, it's not something that's kind of featured in. And yes, of course, Facebook does have marginal cost. And yes, Google invested a lot of money in getting the latency down. Um, and in fact, you could say, well, like search was the last time that, yeah, you actually invested a lot of money to make it happen quicker. But, you know, we haven't had this mental model of like, when I click, it's costing money. And then I'm going to wait 30 seconds to get the answer. Um, it's sort of present you know, in, implicit ways in the past. It's sort of present in, you know, my space was really slow and it's present in 
Google spent all that money on undersea fiber so you can get your search results better. But it's not as kind of directly implicit in the business model. But no, you have to pay money to use this. Yeah, for it to search the data, interpret the data, come up with, yeah. Yeah, like my $30 a month open ISIS group. Like what? When's the last time you paid $30 a month to use a consumer internet product? And how many people were happy to pay $30 and not ask questions and just, yeah. Yeah, that's like creative cloud kind of territory. You know, that's Photoshop kind of money. That's not like consumer internet kind of money. Um, and so that's sort of the sense of like, what's the, what's the market structure? And is this going to be resource constrained and cost constrained? Or are we going to flip back to the point that, you know, a sort of trivial point, but, you know, you take a picture of something with your phone, of text, of a poster, of some books. All that text is indexed a few seconds later. And you can go into the Photos app, Google Photos or Apple Photos, and search for a word, and it'll find a book in a photo of somebody's shop that you took 15 years ago. There it is, it's indexed 10 years ago. And that you don't pay for that. I mean, yes, you paid $1,000 for the phone, but you know, every time you take a picture, it doesn't cost you money. Whereas with Midjourney or ChatGPT, it costs them money every time you press go. And this is a different part of that question, but I also wonder how many people actually use that functionality of the phone. And we've talked about this a long time ago, but when you create technology, mm. 80% of the tech is actually never used. Um, but Well, it's, or it's not used or you don't know about it. Well, you do, and that's it. Especially with Apple, you often just don't know that's a thing that your products can do, which is fascinating. Well, well, no, that's not quite what I mean. What I mean is it's doing a lot of that stuff, but you don't need to know. So when you take a photo as well, yeah. I mean, when you take a picture on your smartphone, whether it's iPhone or Android, there's a whole bunch of machine learning going on in the process of producing the image from the raw data that comes off the sensor. I'm looking at it from a user perspective of just like, I, I know that there are people that don't know they can search for pictures using text. I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yes, both 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 valid points. Like there's one exactly. thing that it doesn't know it can do that. But what I was kind of getting at is there's now a whole bunch of machine learning and everything you do and you don't need to know about it. You you don't that, need just, that's just how it works. It's like yeah. the battery charging has machine learning involved. Like you don't need to know. Um and but if it costs money every time you run that calculation, then that, that becomes a, a thing. Now yeah. back to my kind of model size point, um hypothetically it seems quite likely that, you know, in a year or two, when you take a picture and there's a lot of noise in the picture, like it's low light or something, then there will be a generative model that we'd be filling in that noise with more leaps or more stars or, you know, more grass or something. Um, and so the picture will be, you know, the, we, we, we've already had this phrase computational photography. Um, and that will have to be on the device. Like, there will be models on running on your device, on the Apple chip or the Qualcomm chip that fill in more cloud or fill in, you know, more sky um, when you've got too much noise to just improve the picture. Or, you know, the audio correction, you know, when you're on a FaceTime call or when you're on a, a, um, a VoIP call, there will be a generative AI model running on your phone that will fill in the stat, fill in noise and improve the audio quality without you knowing that it's doing that. That's, I had never thought of that in the sense of just like, I'm thinking about like when we do, for example, our, our podcast and we record and I'm thinking about the sequencing of, and all the different tools I use to come out with an mm. output that's better than whatever we recorded, whether that I put it through Descript, whether yeah. I use the uh, Adobe sound to make it sound better. So it's interesting when you think about yeah. the, the all the different habits and the steps that I'm taking so that the output is better than whatever it started with. I'd never thought about the fact that we're moving to a point where I don't need, A, I don't need all of these additional tools. It can all be built into one. But also I don't need to actually do them. It can, 
the program can read, oh, I'm going to need to make this audio better. Oh, I'm going to make the lighting better, which is fascinating. I'd never thought of it mm. in, such a, in such a way that it's taking away the steps and it's actually automatically doing it and knowing straight away that there's changes that need to, to be made to make the output better. Yeah. So this is, again, this kind of comes back to, there's almost, there's almost one of the, just as I'm talking a lot about this, like how big does a model need to be? Well, how big does it need to, to do be what? to do yeah. what? How big does it need to be to be able to write, answer any question the way ChatGPT is trying to do? How big does it need to be to fill in noise in a camera? That's a very different kind of how big. So you've got a lot, and a lot of it that we kind of don't quite know what, you know, each of these questions, you know, then proliferate questions within them. So you've got this kind of cost point. What you then have, I think, is the error rate issue, which to me is sort of fascinating because, you know, I saw, saw, you know, a tweet earlier today from, you know, sort of, highly followed person um, on Twitter and saying, well, like, I will, G, G, um, GP, chat GPT is already much better than Google search. They say, well, it looks better until you check what it's just said to you. And it might be right. Probably three quarters of it is right. Um, but you can't tell. And so today, um, you know, I, my basic framing here is like a kind of a two by two matrix, um, which is um, firstly, can you see the error rate? And secondly, can the error, does the error rate matter? So if you ask it to write you with any, my, my, my kind of way I was used to talk about the previous wave of machine learning was it gives you infinite interns. Like you can do anything that you could get a 10 year old to do. Um, you just didn't have enough 10 year olds, but you have to check. And so yeah, I think you can write you a sales email, but you wouldn't send it before checking what the intern wrote. Um, it can make you a great image of something. Um, does it matter that that image you made of a car has two steering wheels? You can go in with Photoshop and take that out. Um, but it's the image overall is great. You just go in and add the door and you take out the extra steering wheel and you add the tree trunks to the trees. Um, or you take out the third leg that that person has. But the image overall is fantastic. It's like it's made you, an intern made it. Then you go in and you, and you fix it. Um, the challenge is, um, as I always have always been saying, if you use this as a general search, then the error rates might matter and you can't tell. So if you say to it, I think I've got appendicitis, what are the symptoms? And you just don't get... Of course, what Bing and ChatGPT have is they've got like a manual filter to catch that. But if they don't, and the, like how many manual filters can you write? By default, the actual underlying system will give you an answer. And it may be right. It's probably three quarters of it's right. But you can't tell. And if the bit that's wrong might get you killed. Or, you know, it might have other, like, it might be bad. And so that delta is, okay, does the error rate get better? Which in a sense is partly an AGI question, partly not. Because part of the error rate is it's wrong, but the other part is that it doesn't know. So it can't tell the difference between um, it's made something up or not, or there's not even like a meaningful question at this point. It's just matching a pattern. So you can imagine something that either answers accurately or says, I don't know, that would not be AGI. In six months' time, maybe that will be the wrong framing. But at the moment, that seems like a useful framing. But so there's this kind of question. It's like, okay, what point do we get from it being right like three quarters of the time to it either being right more or... Um, knowing that it's wrong or knowing that it doesn't know. So at what point does that, the fact that half of what it says might be bullshit, get solved? And if it doesn't, then it almost kind of takes you on to the end of the next question, which is how do you instantiate this as product? Do you have like one generalized text box for everything? Or do you say, no, this is just as make sales email button and all it does is make sales emails. No, this is just the add noise function. No, this is just the... Uh, we productize every... Yes. We have a de-umming feature that uses generative machine learning. It is just de-umming. And if it's just de-umming, then you don't really need to worry about the error rate because you can listen to the recording 
And if it's got it wrong one in 15 times, you can see, you can look at the transcript and check. And you also don't have to worry that it might accidentally like launch nuclear weapons because it's running in Pro Tools on your Mac. It's not connected to the Department of Defense systems. Some very clear boundaries of what you expect it to do, yeah. Yeah, like how narrowly does the product, the more, the more narrow the product get and the more expert the user, then the more visible the, 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 the errors. I'm also thinking of something when, when we're thinking about the error rates. I, have, I was just thinking about my own perception of this of it's funny how in I want to say like six eight weeks ago I would look at something and go oh this is phenomenal but I would look at it from a lens of I can't believe a human didn't draw this or didn't write this and so mm. I wasn't focused too much on the error rates and I was less and you're just like you're more fascinated by the fact that it was a computer quote-unquote that built this but then to your point I think that's yeah. that's this appeal like that that are all you know our effects have disappeared and now and now we've gotten used to it and now we're pointing out all of the errors and like i'm what was i think it was national geographic that put out that picture of three was it three tigers side by side and one of them was generated by an ai and two were actual real it's really interesting to see people pointing out straight away well it's obviously if you look at the pupil of one of the of of the the liar like Mm. a pupil never does that and it's obviously there's too much black and i'm going but it was fascinating to look at the three side by side and go, God. shifted perceptions. Exactly. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a classic, um, I think Louis C.K., I'm not sure if he's still cancelled or not, but Louis C.K. on some chat show saying, you know, I'm on a plane and they say we've got Wi-Fi. Um, and then so unfortunately, the Wi-Fi is not working and the guy next to him is furious. And he says, how quickly have you got used to this? <laughs> you know, for our great grandparents, you know, it took like, it took a year to go across America and now you just get in a plane. Everyone should be going, oh my God, we're flying. Um, the other thing that occurs to me just listening to you is there's a quote from Dr. Johnson where he said, um, the, the, hilariously, like 18th century misogynist line, he says, like, a woman giving a sermon is like a dog walking on its hind legs. Like, you're amazed that it's done at all, not that it's done well. <laughs> um, yes. But it is kind of, it is like that. That's exactly the point. You're amazed that the AI can do it at all. Yeah. And so you don't look at the error rate and you don't care. And you're just like, this is just, this looked to yes. the point. It just looks Yes, right. we should do the sense... And then you go, oh, wait. We'll do on. the sensitivity reading on this. That's what we should do. So the sensitivity <laughs> reading is we'll place woman with child. Because that's actually what his, his mental model was. In any case, the women were, were children. Um, but yes, that's what he's saying. You know, that, yeah. The modern version of that would be that, you know, and a child giving a sermon is like a dog walking on its hind legs. Like, you're amazed that it's done. Yeah. Not that it's done well. And this is kind of the way... That's your point. Yeah. Our initial reaction to this is, oh, my God, it's written full sentences. Oh, my God, it's answered the question. Oh, my God, that's roughly right. Then a week later, you look at it and you go, but half of this is just made up. And that's wrong. And that's not true. Exactly. This is a mistake. And that's not correct. And now where we're at is just like, wait, when am I being duped? Like, when... How do I know when... It, we, we, yeah. It's so funny how fast we've moved mm. to being... Eh, Okay, this is actually not quite accurate. Yeah. It's still impressive, but it's not it's not correct. Do I trust it? Um, how much can I trust it? Uh, am I going to have to double check all the work? Is this is this giving me more work? What have you done for me lately? <laughs> God, it was yeah, that's like this. It's the Hollywood line, you know. What have you done for me lately? Yes, and you won fifteen Oscars, but what have you done this year? Um, your last movie was yep. a bit disappointing. What done now? Um, so there's a um, and so this sort of circles around. It's sort of there's this interlocking between um how vertical do the models go and how vertical do the use cases go um which is if you are as i say i've thrown out a whole bunch of examples here very narrow specific vertical things in which case either there can won't be an error rate or the error rate will not be visible or the error rate will be will be um will be obvious and easy to fix 
um, you know, make me more Glark Ross in there. Pretty easy to get that to be 99.9% accurate. Plus, if one of the blades of grass is wrong, you're not going to be able to see it. Write me a sales email. You get the intern to write me a sales. Get the intern to paint more grass in there. You know, get the intern to use the Photoshop clone tool to put more grass in that picture. Yeah, that's, this is what all the Hollywood FX people are now saying. It's like, it just makes it a hundred times quicker to cut people out. hundred times quicker to do to apply that. Yeah, it's just infinite interns. And so the more narrow you get, the more that the error, less of the error rate becomes a problem. But also the more that you move away from the text box interface. And the more I look at that, the more I think this is like a complete blind alley. Because, you know, some of these things, you know, like the human, there's no button for the, like it's just being done automatically in the background, like, you know, fill in this noise. But if you are sitting in a VFX studio, you know, you don't give it 15 minutes of footage and say, can I clip out the main characters in here? That's not like the way it works. You're going to need to go in shot by shot and kind of draw around this bit and draw around that bit and say, okay, cut this character out and change the lighting here. There's an intermediate level of specificity between, um, I mean, there was a joke, I couldn't find it, but like, there was a meme years ago where somebody had made like a mock-up of Photoshop and there was a new menu and the menu had options like insert brilliance here and like remove mistakes. <laughs> and like, that's like the wrong level of abstraction. There's a level of abstraction between you have to draw in every single pixel in every single frame in two hours of footage and um, a button that just says make this shot better. And as soon as you move away from make the shot better, you're probably moving away from a prompt box and you're probably moving to buttons and switches and options and palettes and lists of possibilities and a screen that says, okay, here are six different color casts you could use. Do you, which one of them would you want? Um, I mean, it's like, um, like the original Instagram. It makes sense stuff. Yeah, but it's like the original Instagram applies filters. And like, yes, you could open Photoshop, and, and if you've ever used Photoshop, like, you know you can have 760 sliders, and you can control absolutely every possible aspect of every pixel in every possible way. And Instagram doesn't do that. Instagram just says, like, okay, we've made 15 filters, pick one. And again, like, like that is, you know, there's a, delta, there's, a, there's a sort of spectrum between a command line that just says, make this picture better, or make this picture look, look, look you can have, like, you, yes, you can have, make this picture look hipstamatic. You'd probably rather see a, a grid of 10 different previews and pick, oh, no, I want that one. And this is, I think, everyone's experience using Midjourney is to get something that looks fantastic, you need to know two or 300 words to type in in order to get that look. And as soon as you followed any of these people who were doing like, like the guy I follow on Instagram or person I follow on Instagram, I shouldn't assume it's a guy, but like um, Visual Dome, it's sci-fi, so it probably is a guy. Um, there's an Instagram account called Visual Dome, and it's this sort of fascinating sort of 1940s-ish sort of hypersaturated parallel universe sci-fi stuff. And I could look at the picture and I, I have no clue what I would type in to get that. I mean, I could type in like a man and a woman standing in a desert in front of a spaceship that's got chrome and some fins and like, but I couldn't type in anything that would get remotely close to that image, which is of course why it's silly to say that you can't copyright this stuff or that all it's doing is, cop is, is copying other people's work. Like, no, that's not what's happening. But and there's a sort of, there's a whole space around what is the UI for this? How would you present this? And again, if you were doing this in Salesforce, you wouldn't just, I mean, I've had Salesforce already launching stuff. I haven't seen, haven't seen it because fortunately I don't have to use Salesforce. But like, you don't just have a, 
a card come on from, you know, you've got switches and controls and options. And so what kind of sales email would you like? And you don't want everyone to have to know what, what to ask. And your point about the UI is so true because when you, again, going back to the point that I was making previously, I'm using a bunch of different software to do the one thing that I need it to do in the end, regardless of the results. So I'm going in and saying, for this one, I need you to tune out the, the background noise. Then I'm going to put it in. Once I've got the background noise and taken out of my audio, I'm going to put it into mm. another software, like cut out all the ums and the buts and the, you know, the timeframes where we're not saying anything. Then I'm putting it into another piece of software. So it's interesting because it makes sense. All of the all of the tools that I'm opening up, the UI is fundamentally different because the thing that I need to, to do is very different. You know, I was just going to say, like, is it better to have a command line that says where you type in remove the ums or to have a button that says remove ums? And this is this is almost like this, like this conversation that I always have, we used to have with Steven Sinovsky, who kind of ran Office, which is... yeah. How is it that you surface the 750 different things that it could do? That's it. And what would those look like? And what's the difference between I know it must be able to do that, but how can I find it? Which menu is that in? Versus I didn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that. Or I didn't know how to describe that that was the thing I wanted to do. Well, what it's called. Um, Like I remember when I first started, like I didn't know what loud, you know, loudness adjustment meant or I didn't know when I go into Photoshop what certain words were I know what the thing I wanted to do but I don't know the vocabulary and then when you got the vocabulary then you're probably realizing there's 20 other things that you're completely willfully unaware that it will do and so there's this whole sort of unresolved set of questions around okay is a command line the right UI for that you could always go straight to Excel and say is it a good idea to go to have that you open Excel and it and have it and just say to it make me make me a fully working PL balance sheet and cash flow of Tesla with a DCF valuation. Maybe make yeah, it kind of depends exactly what you want for that. It depends what you want. It depends what experience you have. For example, I have absolutely no creativity and skill set in drawing but I can use words so for me being a but to your point I won't use words the way the guy that you just or guy or woman that you just explained because I don't have that vocabulary but it's still so much more easier for me to input Mm. text and get out a picture than me to even try and pretend that I can draw something but there's still a gap missing but it's still at you know 10x better than me trying and, and this again overlaps with how vertical are your models and what's the error rate. That's it. How are you presenting what it is doing, what it can do? Um, what what is the how narrowly constrained are the possibilities of the model that you have, and how do you communicate what those are, and what are the right ways to communicate the limitations of it? I mean, to me, this is part of the challenge of ChatGPT versus Google is that um, Google says here are ten links that might be the answer. Whereas ChatGPT says this is the answer, and it's this is the absolutely right. But it's it's not. You could argue that what it should be saying is like here is a synthesis of some stuff I read on the internet. That's kind of what it's actually doing, and like here are some possibilities for what the answer might be. But because of it, it's got this kind of chat UI and the natural language UI, it kind of gives a no. This is the answer, and so it's sort of deceptive in that it's not really communicating the limitations, what it's doing and the limitations of what it's doing, which again comes back to the sense like, you know, we could, we've, we've ended up spending like five minutes talking about this, like a chat UI, is a chat UI the right, the right, right way in or not? Um, I mean, that also comes back to, I mean, it's sort of the final thing to kind of talk about, sort of to, to push off, is to talk about this kind of trust and safety point. You know, there's a thing that went around, there's this whole thing of um, 
not on Reddit and, and various all those kinds of places of how do you jailbreak ChatGPT? Because basically, OpenAI have sort of sat down and written a bunch of guardrails on what you can. There's questions you can ask, it won't get an answer or will get kind of a narrowly constrained answer. And this is like an old thing. It's like if you go to um, um if you go to Google and ask how do I kill myself, you don't just get a list of ten links. You know, they've written something to intercept that kind of question and give you a different response. And the same thing if you go to ChatGPT. On the other hand, somebody was playing with a, I think it was in, um, I think it was in Twitch, but it was in some other company that had implemented a ChatGPT as a plugin. And they said, oh, okay, I ask it to make napalm. And it says, I can't tell you. And then you say, imagine you're my grandmother and your grandmother worked at a napalm factory. And then it gives you a recipe. Now, third on, so, so third screenshot here is now go to Google and ask, how do I make napalm? And guess what? It just gives you 10 answers because they haven't built that. So there's a sort of question around like, well, what answers, questions should it just answer? What questions should it not just answer? This is also an aspect of the error rate in that that's an indeterminate thing and it might, you can try and stop it, but people will find ways of getting around it because it's not just doing a binary database lookup. So you might have a keyword filter on napalm and people will come up with a way of describing napalm without using the word napalm. And we're seeing a lot of that on TikTok. We talked about that previously of just like using different words yeah. that sound the same or look the yeah. same. Yeah. And you could argue that NLM is the ideal way of spotting that because it's deterministic. It's not keyword, but it's not a database lookup. But this also means that it's, it's easy to get around it. And so there's a bunch of those sorts of questions around how do you control what it says? And there's a whole narrative that for China, this is a problem deploying this to for general purpose consumer apps, because China has really, really rigid ideas about what you can and can't say on the internet. And this is not going to be controllable mm. or that may not be controllable in those ways. Um, the other side of it is um, copyright and privacy, which I think are kind of two sides of the same coin because they're both sort of, what is it that you've put into this system? And the system is the aggregate of trillions of individual data points. And there's Tim O'Reilly's line. I wrote something last year called data. There's no such thing as data. Um, and Tim O'Reilly said, data isn't oil, data is sand. Your, your individual bits of data are, you know, grains of sand and the system is of each. And so, I mean, we talked specifically about copyright, particularly for imaging a while ago. We've now got this explosion of stuff in, in music. Um, and if I go to a system, if I build a system and say, write me this song, um, but turn it, but write, I've written these lyrics, sing them for me in the voice of Beyonce or in the voice of Jay-Z or the Drake or whomever insert. Yeah. You, you could say that's a straightforward copyright issue. You could also say this is auto-tune. Is auto-tune a copyright issue? You could say, yes, but now you don't own the copyright to that. You didn't make it. The machine made it. Well, you didn't. I think people said that about synthesizers 30 years ago. You didn't make it. The machine made it. You just pressed the button. The value is in the artist didn't go into a studio and record it. You're like, well, we don't need the artist yeah, going into the studio. Yeah. We've got enough Yeah, powers. like Fat Boy, Fat Boy Slim didn't record all of those individual bits of music. Yes, but he still made the thing. Are you claiming that he doesn't own that? He assembled it. Um, and he used machines to assemble it. So there's all sorts of there's that so there's that copyright question. There's also yeah, so only kind of just just occurred to me. But there's also a, a point that um, there's one thing if you're using there's a narrow case is you're using that person's voice. There's a mid case which is you've assembled fifty samples, which is an old an old issue for goes back decades. But there's a broad case which is I give it the last five years of the top fifty and say make me more songs like this, like this. And at that point, who owns that? Is it really meaningful to say that everybody who contributed to those 5,000 songs 
collectively own this song. Because if a person had done that and said, I'm going to try and make something that sounds like the top 50 songs for the last 20 years, they wouldn't like, how does that work? You, you use that chord. I mean, you get into this as, as an Ed Sheeran copyright case at the moment that if he used like a kind of the same chord could change or something. Like his, his song sounds a bit like, I think it's an Al Green song. And did he use that? Maybe, maybe not. But at a certain point, like there's only 12 fucking notes. Uh, did he win that, or is there a second one again? There's... He won it in the. They, I think he won. I didn't follow the details, but there was a case in the UK that I think he won, and there's now another case Got goes it. on in New York. And it does highlight, and it was. I remember him talking about how this highlights exactly to your point. There's only a limited amount of tunes and chords that an artist can actually play. Like, it, mm. if you look at the the song in its entirety, there's a bit more to it than that one chord. So, yes. Yeah. The, the counter part of that is is it's like the vanilla ice like ice ice baby ice. This is a great clip of um, Brian May. So so I listened to this and I thought interesting because <laughs> <laughs> that is just it is literally just Brian May playing the guitar with vanilla ice rapping over the top of it. It's like yeah, that's pretty straightforward. What I find fascinating with all of this is the same question. The answer seems to be oh, right now or collective, the answer seems to be different depending on, well, did the artist copy this or mm. was it a machine that copied this, quote unquote. It's re- and we keep going back and forth of, well, we would have had an issue if it was an mm. artist that just said, I just took the last, you know, 20 big hits and did it. And then maybe we have less of an issue if this was just put through a soft piece of software and the software spat out a new tune. It, there's something there that's fascinating to me that we seem to throw our hands in the air and go, well, well, it's different. It's different this time. Yeah, which is the same as this thing that drives me crazy is people doing, say, oh my God, have you seen what ChatGPT can do? And I say, yeah, you've just you've just done a Google search. <laughs> That's a Google search. Google does that. Um, all of this is to kind of say, I think like, we're kind of getting to the point that like you can slowly pull this apart into 10 questions, but that then becomes very fractal and each of those then become 20 questions. And then we don't know what this will look like in six months' time. But at least it feels like we're sort of we're moving towards at least knowing what to wonder about, if if nothing. And and to your point, those those four or five big questions about error rates, cost, UI, trust and safety, they're starting to be questions. They're starting to be reoccurring questions with more questions to it, which tells mm. us these are the probably the topics that to be to dive into a bit further. Mm. That's like a good place to to end today's episode. Sounds good. Good to chat. Good to chat. Talk to you soon.